you want to turn to 1 John, 4 or 5, you pick a chapter, we'll be in both very quickly. Do you remember being at school? Yeah? Do you remember getting taught how to write a letter? I do. It's not quite as long ago for me as it is for some of you. Maybe you were taught and you forgot. Um, I don't tend to write letters these days, but I still remember that we were advised that the first line of the letter should go something like, I am writing this letter to you because. So early on in the letter, it was clear why that letter was going to be written. John didn't go to the same school as I did, because he does the exact opposite. At the end of his letter, in 1 John 5, verse 13, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. Every letter that has ever been written is written with a purpose and to a person. I I think that's true. And this letter here is written, written to a group of people with a purpose. John's writing to people he knows, to a church that he knows, to say, I want you to know that you have eternal life. He wants them to know that we will live forever with God in eternity. So as the people of God here today, studying the same letter, John would have us know that we have eternal life. For those who believe in the name of the Son of God, he wants us to know that we have eternal life. Last time round, we looked at um, 1 John 4, 7 through to 21. We're going to look at the same passage again, but we're putting it in the context of the whole of the letter, of the purpose that John has. And so we're going to look through this and see what John has to say about this whole idea of knowing that we have eternal life. Now, John's style is not particularly linear. What I mean is he doesn't go from A to B straight away. He's not, in that sense, logical to us. He kind of meanders. So if, you, if I give you an example, if you were going to go for a walk and you knew where you wanted to go, and you say so you were A, you wanted to get to B, the way that John would do it is that he'd go for a wonder, then he'd see a stream, and he'd just go and sit by the stream for a bit, and think, oh, that's quite a nice stream. And then he'd come out again, go across and walk towards B again, but then he'd see a big hill, climb the hill, look at the, the view from the hill and go, isn't this amazing, this view? Come back down the hill and then think, actually... That was a really good view. I'm going back up the hill again because it's so fantastic. Now, he arrives at exactly the right point, but there's so much more richness and so much more enjoyment and so much more depth in his meandering. So it's not as functional as perhaps we would like. We often want to get the quickest way from A to B. John takes us on a beautiful meandering route where we get to taste so much more than that is essential for us to know. He gives us so much more that encourages, encourages us and helps us know that we have eternal life. So I'm going to read the passage from verse 7, 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the passage starts with the encouragement to love one another, but actually, in John's mind, the most fundamental principle, as we looked at last time, is this fact that God is love. So verse 19 says, we love Because he first loved us. And we looked last time at the fact that God is the very definition of love. God is love. He tells us what is love and what isn't love. He creates the definition of love. We look at various different things around the world. Various media, TV, books, friends. They all tell us what love is. They're trying to provide a definition for us. But the only place we get an authentic definition of love is God himself... And how he loves. So he goes on to say, this is love that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God's love is this sacrificial love. This stubborn love. This love that goes after the people he wants and makes them righteous and pure. Makes up for their sin through the cross of Christ. So that we can experience and know the love that God has for us. That's John's starting point. That's our starting point. We always must start in every context, in everything, with every problem, knowing this. God is love. And to know that we have eternal life, we must start in that very place. If we start anywhere else, we won't have the confidence. We won't know we have eternal life. But we come to a God that initiated relationship with us. When we were lost... When we were rebellious, when we were against God, when we were choosing to live for ourselves, and in fact, we were living as if we were our own gods. When we were full of sin and offensive to God's holiness, God loved us. He initiated it when we were at the worst point. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so our confidence must come from the fact 
that he wants relationship with us. He has initiated and started relationship and friendship with us. And he's a faithful and true God. He's not going to change his ways. He's not going to pick up a friendship, then drop it. He's not going to make you his child and then disown you. He's a God of love. And our confidence must come from this. Our relationship with him can only begin because he chose to start relationship with us. That must fill us with confidence and with joy. That the God of love chose to love us and be friends with us. John goes on to encourage us then. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's an implication here. And remember, the context is knowing that we have eternal life. John's saying this. If we come into relationship with a loving God, it affects who we are. And what begins to happen is that we become like him. And one of the primary things is that we begin to love. So verse 19, we've read it already twice. We love because he first loved us. Now, the best example I can think of this requires some help. So I'm just going to get something out of my bag. Anyone familiar with these? I know it's a bit far away. I'll throw them out, but they're very delicate. Um, I think these are technically glowworms, even though one's a snail and one's a line. So in normal families, what gets passed on between generations is like jewelry and precious things. In the Clark family, which is my wife's family, toys get passed down. So these are actually Jules's from when she was very young. And Isabel and Grace have one of them each at the moment. And the nature of these little glowworms is that by taking in light, they then give out light. By placing them under a lamp and then turning the lamp off, just as you go to sleep, you get a little bit of comfort from the light emanating gently from these little beasties. It's beautiful, isn't it? I think it's a little bit helpful as well. So we're those who come into and know the love of God. We're exposed to the light. And then that light gets into us, and we then give out that love or that light. But I, my, my mind's going strange places today. I imagine these having a little conversation. This is helpful. I think you should shine brighter. Okay, I'm going to try. <laughs> You don't look much brighter. But I'm trying really hard. Well, you're not brighter. (laughs) I'm making a very serious point here. (laughs) We sometimes hear this command, which is what it is, love one another. And we go, I'm going to love harder. I'm going to love you more. Oh, I don't feel more loving. Part of the answer is this. We come back into the light. We get hold of the light. I'm sorry, this is going away now. We come to a God of love and we're changed by that love. The answer to showing that love, the answer is not to press harder on yourself and squeeze out more love. 
It's to come before God and say, you're a God of love. I want to know more of that love. And that love changes us. We begin to emanate. We begin to give out that love. But again, the context is this. We want to know, John wants us to know we have eternal life. And what happens when we come authentically and know the God of love is that we begin to love in, I would suggest, a costly way. We don't just love in an easy way, but actually in a costly way. In a way that means we have to sacrifice time and money and energy. And we don't resent that. We can't help but do that. And of course there's times when that's challenging, we need to be wise about our choices. But essentially, something changes in us and we become like God. When we believe, when we come into relationship with the God of love, when we're exposed to this wonderful love, we begin to love in a similar way. Not completely, not wholly, but there's something in us that actually will love in a way that costs us, in a way that needs to be sacrificed. And that helps us know and believe that we're in relationship with God. The other thing this verse says, verse 12, it says, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Let me just make this as a side point. Sometimes we're desperate to know God's love and someone brings a meal round and blesses us and we're still like, God, I really want to know your love. Please show me your love. And then a Sunday morning, someone just comes up and says, I've been praying for you. I just feel God wants to say this. And then we say, God, I really am desperate to know your love. You get the point. God amazingly chooses to show his love through others in the church. And yes, he wants us to directly know his love. But he chooses to use you and me to show his costly love to one another. I think that's amazing and wonderful. And let's not dismiss, let's not get caught up on, I want to feel God's love and then I'll know that I'm loved. Now, we'll come on to look at that a little bit later. And then in a sense, that is, that is what God wants to do. But in another sense, he wants us to know his love when others love us in the church. And so when you make a sacrifice for someone else in order to love them, they can know God's love. I think it's wonderful. I think it's really quite beautiful. That we get used by God to demonstrate his love. And I would love to encourage that more. I'd like to do that more as well. How am I going to do it? Get hold of God's love for me. Get hold of what he's done for me. And that's going to change me and help me. So perhaps you're not convinced. Perhaps you're not certain. Perhaps you need something more. Well, as John happens upon this concept, he said, if no one, no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. He said, oh, just a minute, we know, we know that we live in him and he in us. Now, let's just pause for a second. Another digression. We know that he lives in us and we in him. Just, there are phrases we utter in church, aren't there? And they are absolutely mind-bendingly ununderstandable. He lives in us and we in him. God lives in us. Just think about that for a second. The eternal, almighty, holy God that pre-existed time, that is outside of time, that is totally perfect, lives in us. What a privilege. Now, that doesn't mean if you cut me open, hiding behind my lung is God going, Hiya! That's not what it means. 
It's not a physical material thing. But it means God is at work in our lives. God is changing our character. God is changing our heart, our emotions and our passions. God is helping us live our lives. But because of Jesus, we have God in us. And not only that, we live in him. We live in him. We live in him. I live in Sheffield, don't I? No, we live in him. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. But essentially, it's talking about the fact we're in Christ. Our destiny is entirely tied up with Jesus. Whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. His righteousness has become ours. His heirship has become ours. Every blessing that Jesus has, we have in Christ. We are in him. Digression over, but a very nice digression nonetheless. God is in us and we in him. That, I guess that's like a... Uh, we can, if you, if you look at the last bit where it says, you can know you have eternal life, saying that God is in us and he in him is, is the same thing. If God is in us and we are in him, that means we've got eternal life. So if we can know that God is in us and we in him, we can know that we've got eternal life. And in some senses, John is saying the same thing. But he says this, we know that we live in him and he in us because he, he has given us of his spirit. He's given us of his spirit. Ephesians 1.13. Let's turn to that. Just one verse. Ephesians 1 verse 13. It says this. And you were, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The ESV says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And that's essentially what it's saying here. When you believed, when you came to believe in Jesus and the cross of Christ and the Father who sent him and the resurrection, you were marked with a seal. God put his spirit into you. God came to reside in you. John 3 talks about being born again of the spirit. You were born again of the spirit. In Romans it talks about the fact if you haven't got the spirit of the Lord in you, you're not saved. It's because the two are the same things. When we are saved, the spirit of God enters into our lives and begins to work in us. Which means that we are aware that God is at work in our lives. And in our hearts, that more things are happening in our emotions and our motives than we are in control of. Wonderfully. More is happening in our lives than we can make happen. Because God is at work. When we believe, we are marked with the seal, the Holy Spirit. He comes and works in our lives. Romans 5.5, let's read that. I read it last time I preached, we'll read it again probably twice a day as well. Romans 5.5, Romans is before Corinthians. I'm going to read from halfway through. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he has given us. So not only have we been given the Holy Spirit, God's love has been poured out into our hearts. So for those who are in God and who God lives in, there is a sense in which God's Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and we know God's love. 
Not necessarily an unwavering, totally convinced the whole of the time, but generally speaking, you know that God, God's love in your life. This is John's point. He's saying we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. If we're authentically saved, if we are walking with Jesus, if the cross has been effective in our lives, then the Holy Spirit has come into our hearts. We've been marked by the seal of the Holy Spirit and his love has been poured out and we are walking with him in a, on a daily basis. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Bless someone was preaching last week about um, the Holy Spirit. And he talked about the change in Peter. So, I've just, I've, can you imagine, okay, it's the day of Pentecost. Tongues of fire appears, rushing wind, filled with the Holy Spirit. Out you go, speaking in different songs. People think, so, tongues. People think you're drunk, like I sound like him at the moment. And then Peter, who has denied Jesus three times, preaches the gospel to over 3,000 people, because that's the many, how many people get saved. And in the midst of that says, and it's you who crucified this Jesus, 3,000 people get saved. Do you think Peter's there going, well, I'm not too sure whether I've got eternal life or not. I'm not too sure whether he's at work in my life, and I'm not too sure whether I'm here or not. Now, I don't know what Peter was like, but I suspect at that point in time, when God was at work, when he was full of the Spirit, when he was emboldened by the Spirit to be a witness, when he was empowered to be a witness, I suspect there wasn't an ounce of doubt in his heart that God is in him and he in God. And so if nothing else from this passage, surely, like Brian was encouraging us, we want to get more of the Spirit. We want to get more of God. God, we're encouraged in Ephesians, be filled, keep on being filled with the Spirit. And that's not just so that we know we have eternal life, but in this context, that's kind of what John's saying. When we have the Spirit, we know that we have eternal life. We know that we are in God and He in us. John really wants us to know that. He goes on into verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. He's making the same point again. God's in us and we're in him. How, how does that happen? If we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus becomes our Savior. What does the word acknowledge there? We, we read that and go, oh, acknowledge, okay, I acknowledge you. I acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. The, the word there, the root is a confession or a profession of confidence or saying, it's kind of a worshipful phrase, really. It's professing that you are the worshipper of. So to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God is to come into a place of worship. Let me just bring a little bit of challenge to maybe some in the room. I wonder whether sometimes we think about Christianity and a profession of faith as something that is an add-on. Or maybe we don't think of it like that, or maybe that's how we act. Now, for those of us with smartphones, I wonder if 
We've got all the functions of the smartphone. We think, actually, I, I know, I need another app. I need the Christianity app. I'm just going to download that. That'll be helpful once in a while. It might be useful. So I'll download it, free of charge. Brilliant. No cost to me. I'll download, download that. And maybe, maybe it'll be useful. Oh, it is useful. On a Sunday morning, it's quite useful then. And on a Wednesday, Wednesday evening, that's good, isn't it? Oh, Fridays as well. That's quite useful. I'm, I wonder if we treat Christianity like that. Or for those who are not familiar with smartphones, which I'm sure there are some in here, perhaps we treat it like a hobby, an additional extra to our life, something to add on to enrich our lives a bit, to fill that, you know, we've got a bit of a spare time, so we might as well become a Christian and do some good stuff. That sounds like a good idea. It's just wrong. So, so wrong on so many levels. People can think of it as a a moral code or a way to help you live your life. When we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, we're saying, we get to walk with Jesus. We get to be changed from the inside out. We get to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We get to share in Jesus' inheritance. We get to walk with God and know his blessings in our life. We get the opportunity to glorify God, to say how great he is, to experience how great he is. You see, when we profess faith, if I can put it that way, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. The Bible says we become new creations. We are not the same as we were. We were once in Adam, but we're now in Christ. We were once in death, but now we're in life. Once we were in dark, but now we're in the light. It totally changes everything. It might might not feel initially massively different. But actually, if you were able to have a conversation with yourself now, if you've been a Christian for a while, back to where you were, you know it's very different. But fundamentally, who you are is totally and utterly changed. And God is at work in you to change your motives and your desires. He's at work in you to make him more like Christ. To make you more like Christ. A profession of faith. Acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. It changes everything for us. And when we do that, we know that God lives in us and we in him. And so, verse 16, we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. We've been meandered back again. God is love. What a fantastic view. What a beautiful perspective. Let's go back and look at it. God is love. Let's look at John wants to come back. We're going to come back. God is love. Okay. Let's put it this way. We know and rely on the love of God. There's a sense in which we can take God's love for granted. Just for a moment, let's consider what life would be like for us who know that God is God's love if God's love for us did not exist. Help. He would not have initiated relationship with us. He would have not sent the Son to die for us. He would not poured out his Spirit into our hearts. We would not have the opportunity to acknowledge that, he, that Jesus is the Son of God. If it were not for God's love for us. Can we have confidence? Can we know we have eternal life? Does God love me? Yes, he does. Does God love you? Yes, he does. This whole thing starts with his love. We'd be nowhere without it. So we know and rely on the love that God has for us. 
And verse 16 in the middle, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. John's equating here. So he said, to know you have eternal life is like saying that God is in us and we are in him. And he's saying also, whoever lives in love lives in God and lives in him. So to live in love is to live in God, is to know you have eternal life. What does that mean? I think in in the main, it's talking about our identity and who we are. We are the beloved, God's chosen ones who he has given love to us. It's the place where we live. It's where we are at home and where we're secure. It means also that in all our interactions, we want that to be tainted, if I can use that word, with love. Splashed with love. We want our motivation to be love. 1 Corinthians 13. Familiar passage, we won't read it. But it says, if I have not love and do a variety of different things, then I become like a clanging cymbal. I just make a load of noise. We can get into everything. We can reach people, we can share the gospel, we can do loads of things that seem really Christian-y. But if we've not got love, it's just making a bit of noise, really. Love needs to be our motivation. Love needs to be where we're at. But also, there's a sense in which we have to put love on. 1, 1 Thessalonians um, 5, 8, I think it is. Which is hiding in my Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. Um, Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. We have faith, we have love, we have salvation. But we're encouraged by Paul to put it on. And there's a sense in which that there can be something true about us and it affects our destiny and who we are, but we still need to put it on. We still need to remind ourselves of that truth. We still need to make sure that's where we're living and dwelling. We still need to make sure that's how we're living and that's where our motives are coming from. So there's an, even though it says dwell in love, which sounds inactive, like you're just kind of, you know, horizontal, there's an activity to it as well. There's something for us to do. We need to remind ourselves of the truth. It doesn't happen automatically. We need to put it on. But the word there, as I've kind of implied already, where it says live in love, the word live can be translated dwell or stay or remain or tarry. And as well as it being a statement about our eternal destiny, I think it's a statement about how we should conduct our lives and where we should remain. So uh, if you are under eight or eight, you know, there's grace. Can you stick your hand up if you know your exact address? I'm talking postcode as well. If, you, if you're an under eight, a couple of over eights, put their hands up, show offs. Any eights or under who know their exact address? There must be someone here. Nines and under? Tens. Oh, Esther, she knows her address. Now, Esther's very mature in the faith. She knows her address. She knows her postcode. I'm not going to ask you it. Even though it's a new one, I know you just moved house, that's even more impressive. Esther knows where she lives. 
She knows where to be secure. She knows where to be safe. She knows where to rest. She knows where, to, where she can get sustenance and food. She knows where she's going to get looked after. That's her home. She knows that. We need to know what our spiritual home is, where we should dwell. We should dwell in love. We should be, and this is going to be, I hope it's going to be a helpful metaphor. We should be spiritual agrophobes. Now, for those who don't know, agrophobics are those who don't venture outdoors because they're scared. But in the sense that we should be dwelling and staying in love and not going outdoors, not going away from that. You see, outside the house of God's love, there's lots of things where we shouldn't be dwelling, lots of things where we shouldn't be staying, lots of places we shouldn't go, like dwelling in condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or dwelling in law or legalism. The only way I can please God is by getting all these things right. The only way I can know his love is by doing this. That's not dwelling in love. Maybe it's self-pity. Maybe it's turning things in on yourself. That's where you live. Oh, it's just so hard. I can't do this. Look at my life. It's a mess. All I can think about and look at is that. That's not dwelling in love. And some of those are legitimate thoughts and we need to address them. But dwelling in love means I'm, I'm living in love. I'm, I'm a bit agoraphobic. I'm not going to go out, to, out of this love. I'm staying here. I don't want to get lost and get into other things. Maybe it's worry. Maybe it's worry, not love. Maybe it's fear. We read later on, perfect love drives out fear. Where are you living? What's your dwelling place? Are you dwelling in God's love? Is that where you reside? Is that where your security is? Is that where you're encouraged? Is that where you find sustenance in this wonderful love of God? Verse 17. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence of the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. Confidence on the day of judgment. I want you to know you have eternal life. I want you to know that God is in you and you are in him. John's looking back and his meandering wonderful thoughts lead us to this place. If God is love... And he's initiated relationship with us and poured his love out into our hearts. If he's shown his love through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. If we've acknowledged that Jesus is the son of God. If God's Holy Spirit has come to reside in us. If we're living in love. We can have confidence on the day of judgment. When we face the almighty God, when we come before him, there'll be awe and reverence, but there'll be God-given, wonderful confidence for those who are in Christ. Standing before the Almighty, knowing how inept and failed you are, you'll be able to stand with confidence. You'll be able to stand with confidence. Why is that? 
Through the worship time this morning, we were reminded of how great God is. And the very greatness that we come to fear and revere is the greatness that enables us to stand with confidence. You see, if we want to be those with confidence, we must spend less time thinking about us and whether we've worked ourselves enough points with God, whether we've spent enough time doing the things he wants, and think instead on what God has done and achieved for us. God is great because he's so holy and so wonderful, but God is great because he has saved us. His love has enabled us to come to know him. And for me, for some reason, when I read that verse, I get the image of a lady coming out of a salon with beautiful hair, swaggering, basically. I I was thinking about recreating that, but I don't feel I've got the necessary gift to swagger like a woman, because I'm not in any way camp. So I can't put... Anyway. She comes out of that salon with confidence because she has not fixed her hair. She's not sorted her hair. She's maybe had one, two or three people make that hair look absolutely amazing. She knows it's amazing because other people have told her it is and they've worked on it. It's not been her. She's not done it. So she walks out with way more confidence, with total confidence compared to when she walks out of her own house. She's a little bit nervous. Not too, maybe she's asked her husband, does my hair look all right? Yes, love, it looks great. She needs more reassurance than that. If she's going to rely on her own effort, she needs more reassurance. We can be, we can be like a lady walking out of a salon. What a wonderful analogy. We can have total and utter confidence in our salvation. We can be totally and utterly confident that we have eternal life. We can be totally and utterly confident that God lives in us and we in him. Why? Because God has done our hair. No. Because God has brought about this salvation. It's his plan. He initiated it. We didn't make it up. We didn't even find him. Jesus wasn't lost. We weren't trying to find him. He found us. He initiated the relationship. He made sure there was the necessary sacrifice so that we might be in relationship with God. He's poured out his love. He's poured out his spirit. He has done it. We, we've done a little thing, we've acknowledged the obvious. Jesus is the son of God. And we can know and be confident on the day of judgment. We can know that we have eternal life. So whether you are 5, 7, 9, 11, 20, 30, 40, 60, 80, 90. If you acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. Your salvation has been secured. He's poured out his spirit into your heart. We can love one another because of the love that God's given us. We can know and be confident on the day of judgment that we will be with him forever in his glory. And this is not a matter of feeling loved. This is not a matter of feeling the salvation that has been brought for us. Though of course we want that. It's a matter of truth and faith. 
Dan reminded us to ask the question, who is there like him? There is nobody like him. And John tells us these things because he's met with the risen Christ. He knows Jesus. He knows it. He testifies. It's true. And we can have confidence in the word of God that it is true. Whether my feelings tell me or not, whether my emotions convince me or not, I stand as one believing the truth of the word of God and I will have confidence of the day of judgment. You will have confidence on the day of judgment. We will know that we have eternal life because we worship and acknowledge and live in and walk with this wonderful God.